Good morning, everybody. If you have your Bible with you, please turn with me to the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 4. The Revelation of Jesus Christ in chapter 4. So as we come back today to our study into this book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ, I just want to remind you of a couple of things that we laid down as sort of ground rules at the beginning of the study. I've got them printed for you there in your notes. First couple of things. There's nothing for you to write, just some things to remember. Uh, first of all here, and we're quoting Dr. Vody Bauckham, the Revelation is not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. The Revelation is not a puzzle book. It is a picture book. It's not meant to perplex you and to confuse you with the different things that we will find here, but rather it's meant to build you up and to encourage you and to help you along in your walk with Christ as a believer in any age. Now, a lot of readers will approach the book of the Revelation as if it is a puzzle book that needs to be decoded and uh, the kind of a book that only really a select few people can really understand and interpret, uh, really glean anything profitable from. And so as a consequence, I think a lot of people walk away from the time that they will spend here in the Revelation uh, not getting all that is here for us uh, that helps us to know Christ and to serve Christ And to follow after Christ. And we don't want that to be your experience of the book of the Revelation. And so we're just emphasizing here again. This is not a puzzle book. You're not having to decode a whole bunch of things. This is a picture book. It's painting a panoramic view of something. It's meant for you to understand it and profit from it. Now as we say that, we're not saying that in any way ignoring or downplaying the rich symbolism that is here in the Revelation. John tells us from the beginning. He's going to signify the things that are soon to, to, to take place. And so there are a lot of symbols here in Revelation. But we are saying this in such a way that, that John is writing this Revelation, anticipating that his readers, first century readers, the people in those seven churches, are going to readily understand the symbols that are here. Now, these are symbols that have a, a rich history in the Old Testament. And so as he's writing these things, they should be able to look back and readily understand the things that are being signified uh, to them. So he's painting a picture, it's a picture book, but he's painting a recognizable picture. I want you to understand that and approach the revelation in that way. Second thing that we've written for you there in your notes, again, nothing for you to write yet, but I, I just gave this to you uh, there for your remembrance. This is a book that has a very clear and definite object, right? We called it the big picture as we came through the, uh, initially. And of course, King Jesus, he is the big picture of this book. And I want you to remember that. So as we go through and we see the different elements and what they represent in this book, I want you always to be coming back to this mosaic that John is painting for us that highlights the glory and the honor and the victory and the majesty and the splendor of this King Jesus who sits upon the throne and is ruling and reigning over all things at all times. He is the big picture. We have to remember that because any, any student of the scriptures, any, any reader, any interpreter, any theologian who comes to the revelation and is more concerned with those secondary and tertiary elements than he is about the one who is seated on the throne, it's going to miss the meaning of this book. In other words, if you come to Revelation and you, your main concern is, well, what, what did the jasper look like? And what did the carnelian look like? And what was that green rainbow about? And what are those 24 elders? And who are they? Do they have names? Are these Old Testament saints and New Testament saints? What do the crowns represent? And you've lost sight of the king? Right. You've missed it. Right. If you're looking at all of those other elements 
and not seeing them in, in relationship to the one who's on the throne, then you are missing the meaning of this incredible book. Now we're going to read the text. We're here in, I've kind of written the outline here on the board for you. I'm not going to go into those details. You have it in your notes. But we're here in the second part of this. The second main part of the Revelation deals with these seven seals. It goes from chapter 4, verse 1 to chapter 8, verse 1. I'm not going to read all of that today. uh, But we are going to read all of chapter 4 and chapter 5. Because they are the introduction that set the stage for the seals. Now, just look up here for a second, everybody. You're going to come to the next thing that you're going to have to write in your notes. It's a key word that I want you to be listening for as I read chapters 4 and 5. It sets the theme. So be listening. It's it's a single word that happens over and over and over, 17 times in these 25 verses. I'm going to read now. The word of God says this. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on those thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures each of them had six swings are full of eyes all around and within and day and night they never cease to say holy 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 is the lord god almighty who was and is and is to come And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne A scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold... The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. 
And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne... And the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. God, will you pray for the preaching of God's word? Did anybody pick out that keyword? The throne, yes. The throne is the word that you're going to write there in the blank. 17 times it happens in these 25 verses. It is a key word and sets the theme and the tone for this introduction. So verse 1, John looks and he sees this door in the heavens. And if you will remember from from the, the sections that we've already covered... Christ is the one who has all the keys. He has all authority to open and to shut all the doors. So there's this door that is standing open in the heavens. Christ, by implication, is the one who has opened it. And John hears the voice of Christ. He says, this is the voice that I heard at the first, the one that sounded like a trumpet. You look back into the previous sections that we've covered. That was the voice of Christ there. It is the voice of Christ here. So he hears that voice of Christ. And this voice of Christ is commanding him to come up here. And it says, I will show you what must take place after this. Now we'll talk about that phrase a little later on. But John finds himself now in the throne room of God. Now for your notes there, what is unfolded for us in 4 and 5, the scene that we're going to unpack today, is not a revelation of events past or future. It is a revelation of the present. Present is the word that goes in the blank. The present reality under which John now lives and we now live in light of the Christ event. So God has been promising, promising since the beginning the coming kingdom of, of Jesus Christ. We've unpacked that in Daniel in several ways in this series. Uh, Christ has now come. He's put on human flesh. The latter days are, are, they are here now because Christ has come. He has triumphed, death, burial, resurrection, ascension. And now this is the present reality. Christ has said, John, I want you to come up here. I'm going to show you some stuff. But four and five are not what he's showing them. This is the throne room. He ends up in the heavens. This is the throne room scene. So are you with me on, on how this is unfolding so far? So chapters four and five, what they're doing is they're setting the stage for everything that will follow. And what they do is effectively 
root us in the throne room of God. I know my, my artistry is terrible, but there's a throne sitting there in the middle. And I want you to see that really is the center of the revelation. Of everything that is coming out. Everything is issuing from the throne. This is the, the centerpiece. This is the, the focus. So this, these next chapters, 4 and 5, and we're going to unpack today and next week. They help us to understand everything else that flows out of the revelation. It's happening in the light of Christ's victory and absolute authority over all things. So we see from the start, everything in these chapters, everything in the revelation, it's all focused on the throne. It's focused on him who is seated on the throne. It's focused on the lamb who is equal to and worthy of worship, just like the one who is on the throne. It's all about God. It's all about this king. And we have to remember that as we interpret this. Right, so one other thing that I, we established in the introduction to this whole series, and I've got it there written, written for you in your notes. Nothing for you to write, but it's there. The revelation is steeped in Old Testament language. You have to remember that. That, that is emphatically shown here in chapters uh, 4 and 5. I don't have time to go through and unpack and read all of the different reference points that, that apply to 4 and 5 in the Old Testament, but I've, I've listed out for you in your notes some of the major ones. I'm just going to run over these right quickly. So Ezekiel 1, 1 through 2.10. If you'll go back later this week, hopefully read that in parallel with, with Revelation 4 and 5. You're going to see a lot of correlations there. This is John's throne room vision. Other prophets in the Old Testament have these visions. Ezekiel's is very similar here. You're going to see uh, several things there that will remind you one of the other. So living creatures, for example. Ezekiel will unpack some of those for us. Isaiah 6 is another one of these. Isaiah has his throne room experience with God, and he describes also these four creatures having six wings, each one of them. Uh, he'll tell us how they're using their wings, and they're, they're crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's seeing the very same thing, just describing it in different terms. I wrote for you also there Exodus 25. This is really uh, just the center of God telling Moses what to do with the tabernacle. So this is going to point you to some tabernacle language. God tells Moses, I want you to build everything in the tabernacle according to the pattern that was shown to you in the mountain. And what he's shown in the mountain is the throne room of God. So we understand as we look at the tabernacle on earth and the temple on earth, that it is a, a type and a shadow of the throne room of God. So as you look into the holy of holies you're seeing the ark of the covenant there and it's it's fashioned with uh, angels and their wings are overshadowing that that is the throne of god on earth and as you come and you see that veil there and angels are etched into uh, the veil itself the guardians of the throne you're seeing that throne room unpacked uh the the revelation will describe the seven torches that are burning before the throne when you go back to the tabernacle you'll remember that seven branch menorah that is the light of the holy place it's the spirit of god You'll think about the altar of incense. You see the, the incense being offered here and the prayers of the saints ascending. Throne room of God language there. You've got the table of showbread, uh, 12 pieces of bread representing the 12 tribes that make up the Israel of God. Uh, we'll see some correlation there with the elders, 12 and 12, 24 elders that are seated around the throne. You've got a sea of glass. We don't know that it's a sea. He's just describing what he sees best that he can. It reminds me, I think, of the, the laver, the stair, the front of the holy place that the priest would go through and he would wash himself before he goes in to the throne room of God. So so many of those elements are there uh, in that old tabernacle language that are also here 
in John's vision of the throne room. Another thing that I've given you there is Daniel chapter 7. It's got the most just quantity, direct correlation points with what John unpacks here in 4 and 5. I've got you a couple of asterisks there. If you go to the very last page of your notes, um, I've pasted in uh, some notes from G.K. Beale, his commentary on the Revelation, where he just outlines 14 different points of correlation. He'll list the verses in, in Daniel and then the verses in Revelation and just show you how closely linked are Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation chapters 4 and 5. You can look that up on your own time. There is one final major connection point to mention, and that's Daniel 2. Um, that's where we read of Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You'll remember that we talked about this earlier in the series as well. But if you'll remember, the, the coming kingdom of Christ is at the center of Daniel chapter 2. So Nebuchadnezzar has that dream, and there's that golden head that's, that's Babylon, and then there's that silver torso, which is the, the Medes and the Persians. And then you come along, and you've got the brass, and that's, that's Greece, and then the, the feet of clay and iron, that's Rome. And then in the days of those kings, there is this stone that's cut without hands. And it comes and smashes the base of that statue, shattering the kingdoms of the earth. And then over time, it grows to be this great and mighty mountain that takes over all the kingdoms of the world. Well, if you think back to that sermon that we unpacked, that I think it was the second or third. You've probably got it there in your notes somewhere. We showed you the connection between that coming kingdom of Christ. Right? Daniel talks about it as what must take place in the latter days. Well, by the time we come to Revelation chapter 1, for John, it's what must take place very soon. There's this deliberate correlation that John is writing. Daniel is seeing it out in the future. Latter days, John is seeing it. Oh, this is here. Present reality, kingdom of Christ. And these things are about to start unfolding here in the present. Well, that same connection is happening here in chapter 4 and verse 1. John mentions the things which must take place after this. The language there is still connected to that. Must take place in the latter days. Must take place very soon. Must take place after this. So that statement after this can be taken chronologically. We'll unpack that more as we come into chapter 6. But it also is a shorthand way of saying that God has decreed certain things in history that are going to come to pass. And he is actively engaged in bringing those things to pass that's how this is intended primarily. The focus is on the, the word must. These are decreed things. God told Daniel, I am going to bring a king and a kingdom that will never come to an end. And then time passes, hundreds of years pass. God is bringing to fulfillment every single word of prophecy that he ever revealed to his people. This is showing that God is engaged in human affairs. Now coming to your notes here, Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 unequivocally link John's vision here with the inauguration of Christ's kingdom. <coughs> Christ's kingdom. Excuse me. My throat's still recovering. <coughs> they link it with the coming of Christ's kingdom. And it's that theme that we see coming into focus in chapters 4 and 5 with this emphasis on Christ's throne. He's ruling and reigning. He's been coronated. He is now in charge of all things. Now, armed with that, we're going to consider these elements that are here in chapter 4. We'll deal with 5 next week. 
But I want to see these elements and I want to see how they continually point us to the one who's on the throne. We don't want to get so focused in on the, thing, the elements themselves that we lose sight of the king. We want to see how these things are continually pointing to the throne. Now we've already mentioned just some of the elements of verse 1. The door is open. Christ opened the door. The voice of Christ is commanding John to come up here. And now John is situated in the throne room. Verse 2. At once I was in the spirit and behold a throne. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So two elements here to unpack. First is the precious stones. Second is the emerald colored rainbow. So I've given you these things in your notes. Uh, the precious stones, the jasper and the carnelian, most historians are agreed, but I will let you know there, there's a lot of disagreement on this because these stones that are mentioned here, they come in a lot of different colors, shapes, and sizes. Right? right? It's, it's very difficult to know what the colors of these things are. However, as you come to chapter 21, the bride, the new Jerusalem coming down, is described as jasper. She's the, she has the glory of God and there, this gem is crystal clear. So you might imagine it as sort of like a diamond. So I've got it written here in your notes. The stone referred to as a jasper was this translucent stone. Perfectly pure, perfectly clear. Could have looked different. But John, you have to keep in mind, he's not describing gems here. He's describing the one who's seated on that throne. The one who sat there was like. He's at a loss to describe this incredible glory. But this is just what he gives us. Just imagine this glorious, shining, diamond-like sort of stone. Right? It's immensely glorious. The stone referred to as a carnelian, we believe, was, was deep red, something like a ruby. In any case, though, regardless of what the color of these stones are, in ancient times, these stones are extremely valuable, extremely precious, more valuable than, 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 more value than we attach to a diamond. These are just incredibly worthwhile. And so at the very least, they are pointing to God's glory and majesty and splendor and awesomeness. Now, if the historians are correct and they are, they're right about this translucent diamond-like stone and this ruby red stone, then they do communicate something about the character of God there. His purity, his holiness, his righteousness, his splendor, uh, the red judgment, redemption. These are things that are ascribed to the one who is seated on the throne. Now, One other important thing here, and this is for your notes. These two stones are the first and the last stones on the ephod, E-P-H-O-D. That's the word that goes in the blank. And the ephod that is worn by the high priest in Old Testament Judaism. And that's not insignificant because at the very least it points us to this one who is seated on the throne as one who fills that high priestly role. He's really bearing the fullness of God's people as he sits on that throne. <coughs> so this is another important point to pull out about those stones. Then we have the emerald, <coughs> excuse me, emerald colored rainbow. So emeralds are green, green in the ancient world. We're here in your notes. And still today is the color of life. Life. <coughs> and of course the rainbow points us back to Noah. And to the covenant promises. Covenant is the word that goes in the blank. 
points us to the covenant promises that God makes with his people. So we get here the, this idea as John is seeing the throne. He sees this uh, emerald colored rainbow just emanating from the throne. We, we see this idea of covenant life and covenant grace just sort of emanating from the throne and enveloping all of the people who are there gathered around that throne. It's a beautiful, beautiful scene. But at the end of the day, you've got to remember, it's the throne that John is focused on. And he's focused on the one who's seated there. He's focused on his glory and what's emanating from that throne. But he's still focused on the throne. Verse 4. And around the throne, all the way around it, were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. So again, for your notes here. Thrones, crowns, elders, not difficult to... Uh, to get the symbolism there. All of these uh, convey the same general idea, and that is authority. Authority is the word that goes there in the blank. Authority issues from thrones. God's decrees come from thrones. Authority goes out from thrones. Crowns are worn by those in authority. Eldership, Old Testament and New Testament, is a position of authority. Now the elders who are seated on these thrones, whoever they are, whatever they are, whatever their names are, if they have names... The text doesn't really care about such things. They're wearing white garments. And for your notes here, uh, these garments are the garments of purity and righteousness. They're the garments promised to and worn by the redeemed. Worn by the redeemed. Now numbers, we, we talked about this in the introduction as well. They're very important in the Revelation. And I've written this for you in your notes. 24 isn't a particularly special number in Hebrew numerology, but the number 12 is. 12 is the number of God's divine government. You get to see this typified in the Old Testament with the 12 tribes of Israel. You see this in the New Testament with the 12 apostles of the land who stand for New Covenant Israel. Now, of course, as we come to the New Testament, we want to make sure we're clear. New Covenant Israel does not replace Old Covenant Israel. Israel. That's replacement theology. It's bad theology. Uh, but so is the theology that makes these two bodies separate. Right. Right. New covenant, the- New covenant uh, Israel doesn't replace old covenant Israel, but rather is a fulfillment and completion of it. So write that. Completion is the word that goes there in the blank. And I believe that's what we see as we look at these 24 elders gathered around the throne. I, I really can think of no better way to convey the idea of the fullness of God's people, Old Covenant Israel and New Covenant Israel, all gathered together as one unified body, not two distinct entities, than to describe them as 24 crowned and throned elders who are gathered around uh, that throne. And so that's what I believe these 24 elders uh, point to. They are the totality of God's elect children gathered around the throne. But whatever they are, uh, whatever they represent. If I'm wrong about that, if, if they're not uh, representative of the church, it's the fact that they're gathered around the throne that's all important, right? They're looking to the throne. They're deriving their authority from the throne. When worship starts, they're casting their crowns before the throne. They're singing to the one who's on the throne. So as you look at the elders, don't lose sight of the king. King is the word that goes in the blank. And that's true about every other thing you're going to see in this book. As you consider the seals... And the the horseman, the rider of the white horse, the rider of the red horse, the rider 
don't lose sight of the king who's breaking the seals. It's his glory. It's his power from which that judgment is issuing out onto the world. He is the center of it all. That's the point here. Verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the spirits of God. And before the throne there, were, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. So lightning and thunder. I want you to think Mount Sinai, for example. Uh, typically accompanies the manifest presence. Presence is the word that goes in the blank. The presence of God. And that's what's indicated here. The one who is seated on the throne, this all glorious being that John sees, is communicated as being God. Thunder and lightning are coming out of this throne. That's always there. When, when God comes down on Mount Sinai, rumblings of thunder and lightning. When he comes in judgment upon people, thunders and lightning. This is the presence of God. It is not a serene place. He is a consuming fire. God is very present in this vision. Before the throne, though, you get... <clears throat> seven torches of fire. We don't have to guess about what they are. The text tells us it is the Holy Spirit of God who is before the throne of God. As we said earlier, um, this is tabernacle language. Tabernacle is the word that goes in the blank. Tabernacle. This is the tabernacle language of the Old Testament. Again, we always want to be looking back to the Old Testament. It informs so much of how we interpret this. Please don't forget that. The, the Old Testament is crucial to your understanding of the faith. So we get that Old Testament language. The sea of glass, again, reminds us of the laver. Laver goes in the blank there. I could be wrong on that. I accept that. That's perfectly fine. But for me, that's, that's what it reminds me of. Here is the priest. He's outside of the holy place. He washes himself before going in. Uh, so there is always in the scripture, this, when, when we talk about the sea, there is this idea of separation. Right? There's, there's something wrong with it. Corey's talked about this in some of his recent sermons from Mark. When you start the creation narrative out, everything's covered in water. And so one of the first things that God does is he separates the waters and makes dry land appear, right? He's overcoming the seas. And throughout the scriptures, when you see sea, there's a barrier of some kind. And so even as the priest goes into the temple, he washes himself. But that sort of establishes this barrier. This is a holy, holy, holy God. And even though I'm sanctified... I'm still not worthy to come into his presence. There is this sea. Now, let's look forward, just anticipation. We don't want to ruin the spoiler, but by the time we come to the end, there is no more sea. It's done away with the separation that that is broken, the the sea that was there at the beginning, that is constantly overcome and coming back throughout the scriptures, it's done. Doesn't necessarily mean there's no more ocean in the new heavens and the new earth. But the symbolism is there's nothing more to separate mankind from his God. The scene is gone. Amen. Now, just be clear here. John doesn't say that there is a sea around the throne. He's just he's doing his best to describe something like a sea of glass, right? This is just what he's doing. That's what all the prophets are doing is they're describing the throne room. They're using the best language uh, that they have. Second part of verse 6. And around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind the first living creature like a lion the second living creature like an ox the third living creature with the face of a man the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight and the four living creatures each of them with six wings 
are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So these living creatures, like I said, they're common in the Old Testament throne room visions. None of the accounts are exactly alike. I think one of the writers, maybe it's Ezekiel, describes these creatures as being similar, um, each one having these faces. So he'll see uh, the face of a man, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle, and the face of a lion. That's how he describes them. They're probably all seeing the same thing, and they're just, they have different vantage points, different perspectives. But you see these living creatures showing up in the throne room visions in the Old Testament and here in John. In all cases... It really is. It's, it's as if the, the prophet is at a loss to try to describe them. They're not human. They're not altogether animal. They're not angelic per se. They're just living things like a lion, like an ox, like an eagle in flight, having the face of a man. They're doing their best. They have six wings. I think we go to Isaiah's vision maybe, and we see how those wings are being used. Two of those wings are just used by these creatures to shield their faces from the awesomeness of the glory of the one who's seated on the throne. Two of these wings are used to shield their feet because even though they are holy creatures, they're still not worthy to be in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. And with the other two wings, they're just flying ceaselessly throughout all of time and eternity. They never get tired. Flying around the throne, all around guardians of the throne, leaders of heavenly worship. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And their voices are so powerful. The Old Testament visions say the whole room shakes as they cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. In all these cases, you can't help but walk away from the vision and think these are probably the most mighty, physically astounding creatures that God has ever made. Any one of them probably, in my own mind, I think this, Any one of them could probably come away from the throne and conquer every other thing that God has ever made. Massive living creatures, incredible in power. The eyes in front, all around, let us know that these creatures literally see everything. They know everything that is transpiring in time and eternity. They have perfect vision, perfect sight. You do not want to mess with these living creatures. The most mighty things God's ever made, and they have one task. Lead worship. To praise the Lamb and the King ceaselessly. That's all that they do. All of this power, all of this might, all of this knowledge, all of this wisdom, all of this understanding aimed at one thing. That King, that God. That's the imagery that these prophets, that John is giving us about the awesomeness of the one who is seated on this throne. And of course, their worship catalyzes other worship. And that leads us into the next verse. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And everything here in this vision is about the one who is seated on the throne. And I would just simply challenge you today as we, we did at the beginning of this study. 
do not get lost in the visions, the incredible visions of secondary and tertiary things. Keep your eyes focused on the king. Keep your eyes focused on the throne. He is what this is all about. The entire revelation is from Christ and all about Christ. We have to remember that if we are going to interpret this book rightly. Now, why is this vision written down for us? Why is it given to us? What would the seven churches of Asia have taken from this message? What should we take from it? I have three application points as we close. Number one, comfort. The comfort of knowing that God governs all of history. There's nothing for you to write down in this point, so just listen to me here. Uh, At the beginning today, uh, we pointed you to that connection between this passage here and Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 are about the promised, decreed by God, kingdom of Christ. It's an everlasting kingdom that was promised in the past and brought to perfect fruition, perfect fulfillment in the fullness of time. And the, the significance of that Daniel connection, really, it, it cannot, must not be, uh, cannot be overstated. It's just huge. Because what it says is God is governing all of history. God doesn't just have knowledge of what's going to happen, right? That's not how he comes to the prophets. Let me tell you what's going to happen in the future, how people are going to choose. That's not prophecy. Right. Let me tell you what I will do, right. is what God says. And that's what he does. He comes to Daniel. This is what I am going to bring to pass. I'm going to raise up this king. And then I'm going to raise up this king. And then I'm going to raise up this king. And then I'm going to raise up this king. And then I'm going to give the king. And he's going to shatter all of the kingdoms. And then he does that in time. Now for the child of God, what an incredible comfort that is. God is not just experiencing time. He is governing it. He's ruling over all things. So that no matter what these people are going through, they're, they're going to go through incredible tribulation. Many of them already are going through incredible trouble, trial, tribulation. Many of them know people who've lost their lives for the sake of the name of Christ. And what this Daniel connection says is, God is in control of it all. They can take comfort in the fact of knowing that he is on the throne. He's ruling and reigning. So when they look out at their culture, they can be comforted. And that's what I have to think about in our own day. We can think as Americans. We can look at our government and the elections and how they turned out and they didn't go the way uh, most conservatives wanted them to go. Irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. We can think as Americans. We we look at what the forefathers gave us and we look at the, the complete opposite of that. Socialism, Marxism, now in control of our country. And as Americans, that's unsettling. But as children of the king... It's just another thing. Who cares if tomorrow America is gone? I mean, I love America as much as the next guy, but let's just let's be real. We're not first Americans. We're Christians. Amen. Our God is the king of all things, and all the kingdoms of the earth are destined to be brought under subjection to the king. Who cares if America becomes socialist? Who cares? I mean, I don't want my, my sons growing up in a socialist government, but at the end of the day, Christ is king. Right. These people in the Revelation, members of the seven churches, They were growing up under the absolute monarchy of the emperor of Rome. And yet they're being called to hope because their king is in control. Because their king has dominion. That's the comfort that they have as they face trouble, trial, tribulation, as they face plagues, 
COVID, right? Bad leaders. Christ is the king. That is a comfort that abides so that they can sit back and they can relax and say, our God is in control. I may suffer. I may die. My life may be taken from me for the sake of Christ, but he is in control. He is working all things for his glory and for my good. And I can trust in that. I can rest in that. This message of Christ on the throne conveys that comfort. Number two, confidence. Just confidence in final victory. There are some things for you to write here. So I mentioned at the beginning uh, the word throne. It's a central one in four and five. The word occurs 17 times in these 25 verses. And I don't want to get lost in the weeds of interpretation, but as we've told you from the beginning, numerology is very important in Hebrew theology. Right? So for the Jews, numbers are a language all their own. You can look at this sketch over here, and there's, there's a definite structure. Seven main sections, seven letters, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven visions, seven bowls, seven condemnations, seven visions of Christ's victory. There, there's, numbers are important, right? And so we look here throughout the Bible. This is for your notes. The number 17 symbolizes overcoming. Overcoming is the word that goes in the blank. Overcoming the enemy. And then the second word for you, complete. Complete and total victory. The number 17 symbolizes overcoming the enemy and complete and total victory. And I've just listed out some examples for you there in your notes. So God overcomes rebellious sin in man when he floods the earth on the 17th day of the second month. Uh, the ark comes to rest on the mountains of, of Ararat, um, overcoming the floodwaters on the 17th day of the uh, seventh month. Jesus Christ gets complete victory over death, hell, the grave, sin, and he resurrects from the dead on the 17th day of the first month. And that's just a few examples. We can even go to, to more subtle things, like you, you go to the Gospels and they pull in that 153 fish. Right, that's 17 times 9. That's how the Jews will see this. That, that's complete and total victory over God's judgment. These represent the elect of God. So in, for Jews, numbers are huge. 17 is the number of complete and total victory. And here in the Revelation, we are seeing that victory embodied in the indomitable throne of Christ. His throne is the victory that we live in. So as these Christians are going to go through persecution. Many of them, like I said, will lose their life for the sake of the name of Christ. They get this consistent message. We win. No matter what happens, no matter who is the president of the United States, no matter if this nation falls and another takes its place, Christ's people win. That is the central message. We have confidence here in the final victory over all things. Because he won, we win. We have that confidence in final victory. Final point here. Worship. You and I were made, like the song says, you and I were made for worship. Everything that we do is supposed to be consumed with the worship of God. We, we of course, capture this in our catechism. What is the chief end of man? Kids will know it. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Everything that we are is about Worship. It's about glorifying God. Lots of people through the centuries have searched for the meaning of life. Well, God's word tells you what it is. The meaning of life is God's glory. That's why you're here. 
That's why bad things happen. That's why good things happen, to glorify God. That's why mercy happens. That's why at the end of the day, as Corey and I were talking all the way over here, we're going to gather around the throne as people are thrown into hell, and we're going to worship God over that judgment because he is being glorified in it. Your own children may be part of that judgment, God forbid. But you will worship God. As hard as that is for us to contemplate, you will worship God because his holiness, his righteousness is being vindicated in the judgment of the wicked and in the mercy conveyed to the righteous. It's all about his glory. Now, we look at what's going on in our country. California, of course, has shut down churches, um, shut down everything. But you got a contrast of two different guys. You got John MacArthur on the one hand, and Rick Warren on the other. Saddleback has not met as a church for over 10 months now. Um, John MacArthur's church halted services briefly in the beginning and then came back, I mean, in the face of fines and court challenges and, and threats of imprisonment, they were going to meet. And Rick Warren, week before last, did an interview with Relevant Magazine in which he said that the reason that they're not coming together as a church it's because it's the most loving thing to do, right? This is, this is his reasoning. And he also sort of roundabout way attacked those like MacArthur and us who have gathered in the midst of this pandemic, saying that these churches are one-dimensional. That all they have is worship. He says, well, Saddleback, we, we don't just have worship. And you'll remember he wrote The Purpose Driven Church, where he talks about five purposes of the church, uh, worship, uh, I think evangelism, discipleship, fellowship, and ministry. And so he's just saying, well, right now we're just going to drop the worship off and we're going to focus on those other four things. He's not wrong in pointing out that the church does these things. But here's what I need you to understand as a people. Worship is not just one of the things that we do. Worship is what we're for. Worship is why we're made. We fellowship with the worship of God at the center of it. We do ministry with the worship of God at the center of it. We evangelize, preaching the gospel to the saved and to the lost so that we increase God's worship. We disciple people for the purpose of increasing the worship of God because people who know God more and know his word more worship him more fully. Everything is about worship. It's not just one of the things that we do. But corporate worship is essential for the body of Christ. It's something that we're commanded to do. And so I would say to Rick Warren, if you haven't met together corporately for 10 months, you're not a church. I don't care whatever else you're doing, you're not a church. We come together as a corporate body, an expression of the single most important thing for which we were created, to glorify God. Worship is what we do in everything. Your work ought to be worship. The Bible says that expressly. You should do everything that you do, whether it's making plastics or building houses, right? Whatever you do, teaching kids for the glory of God. As if those children were, were God himself. You're teaching in that way. As if those plastics are going to end up wrapping something that is going on the king's table. Everything as unto the Lord. Our work ought to be that way. You ought to be a husband as unto the Lord. Or a wife as unto the Lord. It's worship. Everything that we're called to do is to be all about worship. Whether you're taking a vacation. It's supposed to be all about the worship of God. What we do as a people... And what we're all about is, is centered there in that throne room, right? right? For all of eternity, we're gathered around the throne in worship of God. Everything that we will do in the new heavens and the new, new earth, all about the worship of God. 
If you get nothing else from this sermon, please get that. You and I are supposed to be about worship. Everything that we are supposed to be thinking and doing ought to be zeroed in and focused in on His glory, His majesty, His splendor, His victory. These songs of the creatures and the elders, they're not just future songs. They're being sung today in the presence of God. And we're being invited at every moment of every day of our lives to join in that worship of the King in everything that we do. And that's what we're called to. Corey, will you close us in prayer?